Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's dovetail in a couple themes here right now on tech earnings. My essay of the year, Ian Bremmer in Foreign Affairs Magazine on the power and the strength of all these big tech companies. Just a fabulous look at where we're heading. And then John, fold that into the power and the strength of Cupertino to say, no, we make the rules for our users, particularly of iPhones. And then you go to the power and strength and shock of Snap. John, we witnessed that last week. It very clearly hurt ad spend at Snap. To what degree, I don't know. That stock absolutely cratered. And then we started to think about what it would mean for Facebook too. Let's have that conversation now with Michael Nathan. Nathanson, the founding partner and senior research analyst at Moffitt Nathanson. Michael, let's start there. I've talked a lot over the last week about the supply chain disruptions, the fact that people might not want to spend because they can't meet the additional demand that spending might deliver. Let's talk about the change at Apple, how much it surprised the C-suite at Snap and what it might mean later this week for some of the big tech players. Yeah. Good morning, Jonathan. I think that was the story at Snap last week. You know, it was nice to blame supply chains. But I think they didn't, they didn't see the risk coming from those Apple changes on privacy protection. They were saying up until the last quarter, things are fine, we have this, do not worry, whereas Facebook was warning everyone. So supply chains definitely hurt autos and iPhone sales and technology sales. But I think that was a convenient excuse for what was probably misunderstanding the risks that Apple were, were bringing to their business. <clears throat> That's the power of it all, Michael. Is Netflix part of this group? I found it interesting that Dr. Bremer left it out of the essay. After Netflix, the subscribers, the mystery of streaming, which you cover better than anyone, is net, does Netflix have power? Netflix has power because they spend $18 billion a year in content, and their strategy is to basically just rifle shot every you know new content every day and it's hard to compete with that but their business you know we've argued in the past doesn't have the same mode as microsoft apple facebook google amazon right they're a different beast you know the fang the fang acronym has been created they're in it but i don't think they're in the same business and the same type of mode protection that the other big five have um so it's in the conversation but it's such a different business model right. than the other companies. You know? well, we've got 18 questions. Very quickly here, Michael Nathanson, before yeah. the others jump in. What's your single best buy now out an institutional short term of three years? Which of these myriad of names is the one that gets you excited? This will surprise you. I'd say Facebook, which is you know printing results tonight. We're expecting a very tough quarter. In terms of uh, forward guidance, the Apple effect, supply chain comments, as Jonathan was referencing. But the stock's trading at a market multiple uh, on next year's numbers. And it just seems to us that they're so well positioned, even with all those headwinds, uh, you know, for years and years of double digit top line growth. So it's Facebook, 
which I know is counter to a current consensus. This, I really think we need to dig into a little bit more. You've got a okay. price target of $420 on the Facebook shares, a really significant gain from where we are right now. And this comes despite some of the disclosures that we're seeing dribbled out from the whistleblower that's been testifying in Washington, D.C. What will get it to $420 a share amid all of this blowback, amid the Apple privacy rules, at a time when the shares are simply $324.61? Okay, so Lisa, I've covered the stock for a while. There are times when you go through these um, intense spotlights on regulatory and business model pressures. I just think it's going to be quarters and quarters of good top-line growth, and it's meeting expectations. And I, I tell you, there's been times in the past where we've seen the spotlight from D.C. and regulators, never whistleblowers before, and the stock just powers through because they've got a great business model. Even with the IDFA, the IDFA changes, the Apple changes, if you want to reach people uh, for digital advertising, Facebook is one of two or three places to go. And that's where the growth is coming from. So, you know, I know it's not, it's not comfortable to recommend Facebook here, given all we've learned about the company. But the business model is really, really well, well protected, given the long-term headwinds. Um, sort of tailwinds that the industry is saying. Michael, you're making a really important point here that last week everyone took a look at what Snap had to say and they said, oh my goodness, any company that relies on advertising, digital advertising is going to get sunk by supply chain disruptions. Are you saying that narrative is completely wrong, that those advertisers will keep advertising and that those companies that have adequately protected against the Apple privacy rules will be the ones that succeed? Yes, I'm not saying that the supply chain risks are not real. I'm not saying that the IDFA Apple changes are not real, but Facebook has spent you know, 15 months warning us, investing in solutions. They have great first party data. They're a different business than Snap. Um, where the weakness was seen at Snap was on app downloads and mobile games. Facebook has 10 million advertisers, right? So there's no, no doubt in the near term, the pressures will be there from Apple changes and supply chain disruptions, however big they are. But Tom said in a three-year view, I have a stock trading on a market multiple that's growing well in excess of the market. Seems to me that that's the place you want to invest in, right? So that's, but Lisa, your concerns and things you've raised are there. I think Facebook has thought about this for a long time now, and they've done things to try to mitigate the, the damage from, from Apple's changes. Michael, let's just finish on this just quickly. What would okay. it take, do you think, for advertisers on Facebook to go somewhere else and pull back and say, you know what, this just feels really toxic and that's not a platform I want my company to be a part of anymore. What would it take? Okay, okay so Jonathan, there are two types of advertisers. There are brand advertisers who are there to amplify their, their message and their brand and, and to be around content that they like. I see that as a big risk, you know, that Facebook advertisers or brand advertisers will leave, but that's a small portion of their ad base. The other, the, the core portion is performance advertisers who are, putting out messages where they want a response, an app download, a site visit, a purchase checkout. Um, until the ROI, the return investment starts to really wane, they will keep spending. They're not there for the branding elements of Facebook. They're there to, to push a commerce activity. Right. So Jonathan, until that weakens, really weakens, they're gonna spend, right? It's, it's supply and demand. The problem is there, there are not a lot of places to go outside of Facebook to reach that many and it's more than Facebook, it's Instagram as well, right? So there's a broad, broad patch of consumers out there who have historically clicked to buy, clicked to download, clicked to rent something, thanks to Facebook, right? So until that really weakens, they have that. 
That final point is so important. Michael, it's great to catch up. As always, sir, thank you. Michael Nathanson there of Moffitt Nathanson. John, Priya Misra spends eight hours a day on Facebook. Yeah, right. She joins us now on rates <laughs> and not on Facebook. <laughs> Priya Misra, Global Head of Race Strategy at TD <clears throat> Securities. Priya, you can escape this one. It's the Fed blackout period. The chairman had the last word, the final word. What did we learn from Chairman Powell, Priya? So I think he's managing expectations here that inflation, even though they haven't really pulled back from the talk of transitory, notice that he didn't bring it up at all. I think they're telling us that inflation supply chain issues are going to last for a while. He didn't talk about hiking sooner, though. So I think if the the, the market has repriced the hiking cycle significantly. And what we heard from Chair Powell, uh, we also heard that from Secretary Yellen over the weekend, was that inflation supply chain issues are likely to last well into uh, 2022. So I think they're trying to tell us, look, this is going to be with us for a while, but and and uh, the Fed is going to taper very soon. So uh, so we ex- uh, expect an announcement next week. But that the hikes are still, you know, further out, and the market is absolutely calling uh, the Fed's bluff. I would say global interest rates are calling the central bank bluff and saying that they will be forced in to start hiking much sooner. I actually think that, um, you know, inflation will at some point decelerate next year. At some point, <clears throat> supply chain issues will go away. We think there's a lot of labor market slack, so we're actually uh, uh, pushing back against this move uh, in front end rates. Decelerate though to what? And this is really the issue as you look at ten year break-evens bumping up against the highest since 2005. This idea that people, yes, are seeing a lower inflation rate than we are seeing now, but still uh, north of two and a half percent. At what point does the Fed start to pay attention to that and actually treat that as the right way to view longer-term inflation? Sure. So I think, you know, we've been used to the last 20 years of much lower inflation. Maybe the next decade is going to be a 2% type inflation. You know, maybe we're going to be in a 2 to 3% range. I think what the Fed's going to watch for is these long-term inflation expectations, five-year, five-year break-evens. Are they looking unanchored? I think that's an, a, an extremely important aspect. And the other one's going to be wage inflation. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the big question is, has the labor market structurally changed? Has this exactly. great resignation, is that going to remain or are people going to come back? We feel very strongly that people who've left the labor force are going to, a, a lot of them are going to come back. I mean, people who've retired, Maybe not, but others are going to come back at some point. Those savings are going to run out. So if wages, um, you know, start to stabilize, start to head lower, at least uh, um, the rate of wage inflation, I think that will give the Fed confidence that there is labor market slack. And, you know, raising interest rates to try and solve a supply chain issue is is, is not the solution. Raising uh, rates to solve the labor market being tight, I think absolutely, um, uh, you know, that will be the response. Right. I think it's going to actually come down to the labor market slack or, or their perception. Exactly. Priya, that's right where I wanted to go. Before you came on air, I was looking at the ECI, the blended folks wage and benefits dynamic, and it really hasn't broken out. When you fold in your interest rate work with TD Securities, Economists work. Do you suggest a breakout to true nominal and even positive real wage inflation? Or can you not say that? Yeah, actually, I'm glad you bring up ECI. We prefer the ECI over the average hourly earnings because average hourly earnings is picking up. Uh, uh, you know, uh, when people move jobs, they should. Uh, 
uh, earn a higher rate. ECI is actually looking at if I've had the same job over the last year, has my wage have my wages gone up? So I think this whole idea of how the labor market is structurally changing, I think ECI does a much better job. We think that people are going to return. It just <clears> could take a while. People have moved. There are frictions in the labor market. At some point when people come back, that ECI is, is, is a, I would say, a, a, a much more comprehensive measure. We don't see wage inflation picking up uh, at all for, for a while, which which is why we have the first Fed rate hike only late 2023. So I think front end of, of the rate market globally, but uh, but particularly in the US, I think it's very attractive. I think people should move, not take duration risk. The Fed's about to taper, but move out from buying tens into fives, threes. I think the Fed is a long way here um, from hiking interest Pre, rates. You think we've priced too much into the belly of the curve, right? I, I think so, yes. I think we've priced a lot in the front end. That end point of the hiking cycle is not moving higher. I think the market's really confused that the Fed might have to start hiking, but can the economy withstand much higher interest rates? Which is why what is um, surprising to me is the end point of the hiking cycle is only 1.6, 1.5. I mean, would the Fed want to start raising rates if all they can do is rise, you know, raise it to 1.5? That's what looks odd. So I think the belly may have a little bit more room to rise. That very front end, which is much more about the start of the hiking cycle. I think that is the most mispriced. Priya, thank you. Priya Misra of Teeley Securities Thanks. joining us on the rates market, pushing back against the rate hike talk. Amy Wu Silverman is equity derivative strategist at RBC Capital Markets. All you need to know is her research notes are really sophisticated and have loads of Greek letters. She looks at the cross moments, skew, kurtosis, and the rest of it and distills it down to shut up and hold or shut up and buy or maybe go to cash. She joins uh, this morning. Amy Wu on rated change and on Delta, not the convexity, not the second derivative. You are all first derivative this earnings week. Why? Well, look, you know, this is really the week the market reports, right? So, you know, you basically have the big mega cap tech fang names and and those five names really make up 20% of the S&P. So the folks who are using options right now uh, Tom, uh, particularly for this Friday's weekly expiration, what are they <clears> playing? They're either trying to hedge, you know, this movement in tech, right. which could result <clears> in a movement in the market, um, or they're doing it individually. But these mega cap names are really driving the market uh, overall because of their size. I want to give our audiences on radio and television, Amy, will the idea here of what is in your research notes. Let's take Apple. We could take any other name, folks. And I want to talk about the Delta, the rate of change, and also what you see in the cross moments. Take Apple now, and if somebody wants to go long or somebody wants to hedge their long, how rich is the derivatives market of Apple? And folks, just to be clear, Delta is not an airline. <laughs> well, it is an airline, but it, in the context of options, it's also the sensitivity of option price uh, to changes in the stock price. And obviously, that's what we're looking for, especially when there's an event, Tom. Surprisingly, you know, Apple options are not that expensive. We compare it to all its comps that are reporting. We compare it to the market. We compare it to its own realized volatility over time. And heading into this earnings, Apple options are fairly inexpensive. And the other thing is the amount of demand for hedges is actually declining. Uh, which we think is interesting, you know, given that it was kind of at the center of the storm around the privacy issues that obviously bled into Snap and into other uh, tech names that we saw last week.
So, Amy, taking a step back, does that mean that people are pretty optimistic <clears throat> heading into these tech earnings, that basically uh, they think that a lot of the bad news and the potential discrepancies uh, that have stemming from some of the supply chain disruptions have all been priced in? Yeah, you know, when we look to the options market, that was one of my takeaways. Uh, in particular, after last week, I'll give you one example. Snap, obviously down, you know, 26% on earnings. But if you actually look to the derivatives market, it has now gone into skew inversion. Just to translate that, that means the demand for calls is now outweighing the demand for puts. That's a fairly abnormal uh, event that doesn't always happen in options. And it's signaling uh, kind of an extreme level of bullishness. We're also seeing that in Facebook as well. We're seeing that in Apple. So, you know, look, people can be wrong in the options market just as they are in the stock market, but the sentiment is certainly shifting more bullish ahead of this week. Amy, one of the wonderful things that you do is you track the correlations and try to understand what the triggers are. And here we are heading into tech earnings at a time when there's increasing bearishness around bonds, right, about around duration. And typically tech has been viewed as the most duration heavy area. How do you view the correlation with people's view on the rates market with tech sentiment at a time when they've been posting blockbuster earnings? Yeah, it's a great question. And obviously, kind of the, also the 10,000 foot view related to that is that tech is kind of at the center of this growth versus value trade, just as it is uh, compared to bonds as well. I'll say one thing right now, you know, correlations will tend to break down a little simply because we're going into earnings, which tends to be an extremely idiosyncratic event. Uh, so if there was any time for that dispersion to appear in the market, it would be now. But I do think that as we head back into year end, that becomes something that people watch very closely, just where tech is compared to uh, the bond-related ETFs like a TLT, a HYG, and LQD. Can you do a derivative analysis of a moonshot? Up we went above 800, down we went on Tesla, and now up through 951 uh, this morning on the Schatzker article. I should notice Mr. Jonas at Morgan Stanley uh, raising his price target as well. Can you, Amy Wu Silverman, do a Greek letter analysis of something as original as Tesla? I love Tesla for, from an options perspective. And the reason is it's just become its own special animal. You know, yeah. we have we have 500 to 1,000 stocks that we watch all the time, Tom. And occasionally we just have to put Tesla in its own special bucket. Uh, one thing I'll tell you on Tesla right now, <clears throat> it's equity skew, uh, one of your favorite words, right. that demand for put protection had been really, really high. It dropped a little bit after earnings. But what I think is interesting is it's still pretty high and earnings are over, right? So so what what is the market kind of concerned about on Tesla? Just just before well, I started this call with you, you know, we, we saw the Hertz announcement on Tesla. So maybe that changes today. Yeah, thank you to Eric Schatzker for that reporting. And, and Amy, well, what's so important here, and folks, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but if you have a continued hedge value to Tesla, at some point up, they have to cover. Is there a convexity opportunity in Tesla where we see an acceleration higher as busted trades are covered? Yep. So, so you know, you're, you're referring to, to kind of what people refer to as the gamma hammer or the gamma squeeze, where, you know, a lot of the times when yeah. you see that um, inversion in skew, right, that call demand, again, outweighing that put demand, it forces dealers who are doing delta hedges on the other side because dealers are trying to not take directional bets, right? They're trying to not take bets on delta. They're simply trying to facilitate 
uh, people on both sides that there's extreme call buying. You can essentially see more stock up situations because of that that Greek letter uh, gamma, that gamma squeeze that's happening in Tesla. Before we let you go, Amy, I'd love to get a gauge of just how active traders have been going into the earnings season. The idea that we've gotten so many of the gains that the year is almost over, especially as people recalibrate their expectations for Fed policy. How much is activity increasing as there's this idea that this is the last hurrah this week of earnings before people basically pack up their bags and go on vacation? Yeah, we've seen a lot of institutional activity. We've seen a lot of hedging in QQQs ahead of this week. I think a lot of that is related to just simply how large a market cap is reporting in this week alone. Obviously, we see the traditional year-end hedging. But, you know, we have seen a drop-off, Lisa, in retail demand. So, you know, retail, which was busy trading call options to kind of insane degrees last year during the pandemic, that's dropped off a lot. You know, I think they're busy trading uh, cryptocurrencies now, but, you know, that activity has lessened uh, much more than uh, it was at this point last year. Amy, thank you. As always, Amy Wu Silverman there, the wonderful Amy Wu Silverman of RBC Capital Markets on a big week for big tech. This is really important, folks. It's 220 pages, and for the first time in ages, I'm going to say it's a cover-to-cover -cover read. Foreign Affairs Magazine, Dan kurtz Phelan joins us right now. It's on his wheelhouse, China, and it is absolutely spectacular. Let's get to it, uh, Dan. Congratulations. And let me start with my essay of the year by Dr. Bremer of Eurasia Group. He sits there and folds in the technology companies into your international relations. Explain the international relations of Amazon. That's right. So, so Ian Bremer's contribution here is not just to point out what we all know, which is that tech companies are hugely important. They're major actors in shaping the world, but they've really risen to the point where they are like states themselves. And what this means is that when you look at the big players, not just Amazon and Alphabet and Facebook and the American players, but also uh, the big Chinese tech companies, the big tech companies elsewhere, which model of tech company wins out in shaping cyberspace is really uh, going to determine the geopolitical future, not just the future of technology. So it's become a very different game. You went for sales. You put Mearsheimer in the book, and they're always going to move more copies of foreign affairs. The gentleman who went after NATO and went after continental Europe as they, they faced Russia a decade ago, he's scathing here on the U.S. approach to, client, to uh, China and says the United States is ignoring realist logic. How realist is the Biden administration? John Mearsheimer loves to go after what he sees as the big mistakes of American strategy and American foreign policy over time. What's really remarkable in this essay where he looks back at U.S.-China strategy over the past several decades, he calls this the biggest strategic mistake we've made in the history of America's time as a great power. What he sees is this mistake of thinking that China would become more liberal, more, uh, more acquiescent, more like the United States. Instead, as we all know now, the, the opposite has happened. It's become more assertive. Its political system has not liberalized, and Xi Jinping has proved to be a, uh, the most kind of assertive Chinese leader since Mao. The Biden administration, as we can see, and Richard Haas's essay makes this point, has really kind of extended the recognition that started probably late Obama and then really under President Trump. 
the the idea of China as our main competitor and in some ways the kind of um, uh, focal point of American foreign policy of the Biden administration's China policy has been very tough, very assertive, uh, very hawkish in some ways. And that's been a, a change in American foreign policy that really goes across both parties. We talk about you know, partisanship in Washington, but this is probably the most bipartisan policy we have today. What's the goal then, Dan, if this is the new approach uh, for a longer period of time, especially at a time when the trade deficit continues to deepen between the U.S. and China? So you're asking the million dollar question. We've decided that we need to be tougher. We've decided that this is the central challenge for American foreign policy. But both parties have really struggled to figure out where we go from here. So if we think about what an end state is with China, the Chinese Communist Party is probably not going to go away. Xi Jinping is probably going to be in power for some time to come. We're still going to have to cooperate with China on issues like climate change. We're, of course, approaching this massive UN climate change conference in, in Glasgow in a, in a few days. So we need to find a way to coexist in this world, even while, from the perspective of U.S. foreign policy, you're able to push back on some of these very worrying things that you see from China, its own region, within its own borders, and globally. So there's this ongoing quest to figure out where this all goes, what 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 goal we are aiming for. And I would say that, you know, that's that's a question we'll be trying to figure out in our pages over time. It's also a question that policymakers in the US government and the Biden administration and beyond are going to be are going to be really grappling with. Well, the goal for the Facebook uh, state and the state of Amazon is quite clear. It's to make money. And we do see this increasing shift into China, despite some of the hardened policy from the United States, as you were talking about earlier. How does the US or how should the U.S. respond in terms of regulating the U.S. business interest over in the China mainland? So, so th this is one of the most interesting elements of that Ian Bremmer essay, this, this notion that these tech companies are both critical to national power, right? If you look at U.S.-China competition, one huge piece of that is who's going to have the technological edge when it comes to everything from AI uh, to... Um, uh, to quantum computing, to cyber tools. And as we all know, the private sector actors are really, really central in that. So even at this moment when these private companies, the ones you mentioned, as well as many Chinese companies that have become really, really major global presences in various uh, tech sectors, even as they become these huge private sector players, when we talk about US-China competition, when we talk about US power, a lot of that comes down to who's developing technology faster, who's developing AI and quantum computing and everything else. Dan, it'd be unfair if I didn't ask you of your knowledge back to George Marshall in China of another time and place. Give us the Kurtz Phelan once over on Taiwan as it stands now. How should the United States project a modern George Marshall to Taiwan and to mainland China? Well, th thank you, Tom, for bringing up George Marshall, which is a topic I spent uh, many years of my life working on. When you look at, at Marshall's approach to China, it was all about balance. So you needed to be, um, in some ways, tough and clear and strong, but also needed to be really aware of risks and limits and, and balance those two things. And that's exactly what the U.S. is trying to do in Taiwan today. We can see that uh, China has become uh, much more aggressive, at least in its rhetoric, when it comes to Taiwan, when it comes to, to reunification 
reunification with Taiwan. Mm. And the U.S. is trying to, on the one hand, project uh, project strength and project a certain commitment, but without going so far as to uh, increase tensions even more or encourage risky behavior by others. So it really is this really fine right. balance, and it's a re- very dangerous situation. And you can see if you have Chinese, uh, Chinese planes right. in the Taiwan Strait, you have all these commitments. It could escalate really, really quickly. You are advantaged by Elizabeth economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. She was shockingly prescient a number of years ago of the domestic challenges to President Xi. Why has Xi not left home? From where you sit and with all your contacts, is President Xi threatened by domestic affairs? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to tell you, Tom, that we'll have an essay from Liz Economy in our next issue, which will get at some of these questions. Well, get us out front now. Farrell's I will give you a preview. We, from, from outside, it's easy to see Xi Jinping as this just incredibly powerful leader who has this hold on Chinese power on Chinese government in a way that we haven't seen in a very long time. But when you look at the just array of threats to his power, whether it's demographics, it's environmental stuff, it's some of the threats to the Chinese economy, I mean, you would uh, uh, know, know some of those dimensions better than I, he's got a lot of reason to worry. So he's going into his own uh, party Congress next year, trying to secure his own power for another five-year term, but he's got a lot to deal with at home. And you can imagine why, if you're sitting in his position, you'd feel a lot of insecurity as you try to reckon with some of those threats. Hey, Dan, great to catch up. Important topic at the end there, too. Dan Kurtz feeling there of foreign affairs. Ellen Wald has been kind enough to join us uh, many times with the Atlantic Council. A senior fellow, her book, Saudi Inc., is absolutely, absolutely definitive. Um, In Riyadh, Ellen, right now, what are the new elasticities? There are lessons learned along the way, and then there's the changing or the percent change of the change that they can do, particularly in supply. How close are we to a supply adjustment? I think that right now, Riyadh is very confident that they are progressing along the right path. Um, Definitely for them. uh, I think that they see um, the fact that there is definitely tightness in terms of supply and demand as um, a positive thing right now. They were very shell-shocked by uh, what happened in 2018, which was uh, we saw Brent hit $85 a barrel, and then under pressure from the U.S. and others, OPEC Plus opened the taps, and the next thing they knew, it was December, and prices were at $50 a barrel. So they're very much reacting to uh, what happened then and do not want to see a repeat. And that's really the question, Lisa. What do they react to if it isn't the single point price of $86.31 a barrel? And what are they looking at in terms of the swing producers? Because ultimately the shale patch had been the swing producer. And now that's being called into question a little bit more. Ellen, how much is that part of the issue that frankly gives Saudi Arabia confidence that they can wait a little longer and not cannibalize demand? Exactly. I think and and we have to understand that they are are in close contact. I mean, they maybe not quite as close as the contact between Russia and Saudi Arabia, but they they know, uh, you know, what's going on in the, the shell patch. They know these CEOs. They understand what their considerations are. And so they have a good sense that 
Um, yes, we're going to see some growth in the shale patch, but it's not going to be anything like the kind of explosive growth that we saw in years prior. So I think they're they're fairly confident about that. Uh, one of the things I think they're also uh, looking at is um, they are very concerned about the fact that a lot of this climate rhetoric has been hurting investment in fossil fuels. And so having these higher prices right now kind of brings home their point that, yeah, fossil fuels are still a really important part of the energy ecosystem. And I do think they would like to see some of that pressure and that rhetoric abate a bit, especially when it comes to them, uh, despite the fact that they're going all out and making these net zero pledges at the same time. Ellen, this is really important. And I'd love for you just to basically put a bow on this, the idea that maybe they like the higher price, because frankly, it sends a message to uh, the uh, the energy sort of efficiency debate, the, the green energy debate, the idea here that if you want it, you'll have to pay for it. In the meantime, you're going to see our oil prices continue to go up. Exactly. I don't think it's quite uh, an idea of, of retribution, but I do think that they have been battling with this, this climate messaging of saying, yeah, we care about this. Yeah, this is a big issue. But at the same time, the alternatives to fossil fuels aren't there. You still need us, so stop treating us like we're disposable. And so this is an opportunity for them to say, look, now you know we're not disposable and you need these fossil fuels, so let's you know, tone down some of the, the very anti-fossil fuel rhetoric. And we saw that with these um, documents that were released that show that Saudi Arabia and some other oil producers have been lobbying the UN to try to tone down some of that anti-fossil fuel language in uh, a new uh, climate report. Ellen, uh, long ago and far away, Lisa Bramowitz paid for the offspring's education by picking up uh, West Texas Intermediate Futures at a large negative statistic. I believe this was April of a year ago. Brent crude maybe never got there, but Brent crude was dirt cheap. How rich or richer or richest is Saudi Arabia in the last year and a half? They've made a lot of money. And um, as they continue to put slightly more barrels on the market each month, they're going to continue to make more money. And I think that they see in, in some respects, and they might not voice this out loud, but, you know, amongst themselves, I'm sure that they see that this is this is almost in a sense they're they're right because they have suffered through very low oil prices. They've done actually quite well throughout a period of very low oil prices, and they undoubtedly want to take advantage of these high prices as they can now with the understanding, right. I think, that, that they understand it can change very quickly. And especially with these developments in, in China in terms of another coronavirus right. outbreak. They're keeping a very close eye on that. Hey, Dr. Walt, I want you to pretend you're a market economist or oil expert now at a big Wall Street firm. What is the price statistic for Saudi Arabia of Brent crude and the collar around that where they're satisfied with that as a price? I think they're pretty satisfied with anything between... Uh, you know, they're, they're very happy with over 70. I think by the time we hit 90 or or triple digits, they may be, be getting a bit nervous about some demand destruction. So we're definitely still in the range that they're quite comfortable with. More than the collar. Yeah. This has been wonderful. Ellen, thank you so much. Ellen, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, Atlantic Council and senior fellow as well. 
This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.